know I am thrilled every time I get to kick off a new teaching series. And I get to kick off a new one this morning on the book of Romans. For reasons that I trust will shortly become clear, we are calling this series Subversive Peace, Reading Romans Backwards. But I think we have to start off by acknowledging that Romans has a bit of a reputation. I vividly remember when I was 19 and I took a class in Bible college on the book of Romans. And I remember thinking, finally, we're going to do some real theology. Because that's sort of like the reputation that Romans has for me, at least. It's regarded in many Christian circles as Paul's magnum opus. As close as to, as to a uh, systematic theology as Paul ever wrote. A heady, dense, esoteric book for theologians. In fact, some of the biggest names in church history are associated with this book, like St. Augustine. St. Augustine, one of the most influential theologians in church history, he was once a cavorting, wayward, spoiled playboy. Did you know that? And he... Uh, was at the end of his rope. He was deep in despair, weeping, and he thought he heard some children singing, take up and read, take up and read. And so he played a quick game of Bible roulette, and he just flipped open the Bible, and first passage he landed on, uh, he read it, and this is what he wrote in his book, Confessions. I seized, opened, and in silence read that section on which my eyes first fell. Not in rioting or drunkenness, not in chambering or wantonness, not in strife or envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh. No further would I read, nor needed I, for instantly at the end of this sentence, by a light as it were of serenity infused into my heart, all the darkness of doubt vanished away. That was uh, St. Augustine's conversion from being a spoiled playboy into one of the great doctors of the church. And that was Romans 13.13 13 that contributed to his conversion. And of course there is Martin Luther. Martin Luther famously had a sort of second conversion experience while sitting on the toilet and reading Romans 1.17. Did you know he was on the toilet when you read that? It's true. Uh, he discovered his new interpretation of justification by grace through faith, and he writes that he felt totally newborn, and through open gates I entered paradise. And of course his interpretation of Romans went on to be uh, central to the Protestant Reformation that swept Europe and eventually the whole world. So when we, when any church dares to embark on a sermon series on the book of Romans, I think it's perfectly understandable if some of us feel a little bit intimidated by that. Because, you know, we wonder, we worry, is it going to be relevant to our everyday lives? It's a reasonable concern given the way that some traditions have taught the book of Romans. Um, some, some traditions teach the book of Romans like it's a theology textbook, especially chapters 1 through 11. But here's a fact about Romans that I think is so obvious that we often overlook it. The book of Romans is a letter. It's written to real people who lived real everyday lives, just like us. So 
it's absolutely critical that we don't allow Romans in our imagination to become merely about abstract theoretical theology. Romans is about lived theology. It's about a way of life. The letter itself tells us what were the concrete social context in which it was written and, to, and to, into which it was written. And Paul teaches in response to those concrete, real situations. So I think we need to keep that word in mind as we read Romans together. Context. Romans is contextual. It was specifically written to a specific set of people at a specific time in a specific place. That doesn't mean it has nothing to say to us today. In fact, I think it has a lot to say to us today. But it means that in order for us to understand what it has to say to us today, we have to first understand what it had to say to its original recipients. So that's why I think understanding the context is so critical. When Oshida and I were first interested in each other, uh, it was in the early days of the internet. Isn't that, isn't that a weird, yeah, that's us. Isn't that a weird phrase to say, the early days of the internet? But it's true. Um, we did a lot of emailing each other because those phone cards, because long distance was really expensive. And those phone cards, they cheated you. They were like, you remember how they cheated you? They said they had 60 minutes, but used like 48, and they would like say like, oh, time's up. So we, we burned through a lot of those phone cards, but we did a lot of emailing. And before I moved to New Orleans from Illinois, I archived all of those emails on a zip disk. See how I'm dating myself more and more in this illustration? Some of you don't even know what a zip disk is, but uh, that was a thing at one time. Now imagine if somebody read those emails, right, and had no clue about the early 90s, or late 90s, early 2000s Christian conservative subculture in America, and had no idea who me or Oshida were. They would probably be really confused, like, what is all this kissing, dating, goodbye talk? Like, what, what does that even mean, right? I still don't know what that means exactly, but we were in that culture, very deep in it. So how much less are we going to understand a letter written to people 2,000 years ago in an ancient culture that's completely foreign to us, right? Well, this is why noted NT, uh, New Testament scholar, I put NT, <laughs> noted New Testament scholar Scott McKnight recently wrote a book called Reading Romans Backwards. Because the social context of Romans is primarily seen in the latter chapters of the book, chapters 12 through 16. So to couch the book in its social and relational context, he proposes that we study the book backwards, starting with the latter chapters and then reading the former chapters in light of those. And actually, as I've been reading Romans this way, I found it to be really enlightening. It's enhanced my interpretation. A lot of people who read Romans in the Western world, we are tempted to read it as a book about individuals. A, a book written to individuals and applied to individuals. But reading it this way, keeping it in the social context of the church, helps me to see all these new applications for the church. Here's what McKnight writes. He writes, It is for many an irresistible temptation to make Romans about abstract systematics, theology, or philosophy. Romans 1 through 8 or 1 through 11 becomes Christianity's first abstract theology. Those chapters become timeless theology, their ties to the house churches of Rome ripped from their hooks. 
Many are so worn down by this approach to Romans that by the time they reach chapter 12, they breeze through the rest as compulsory, unimportant information. The best of commentaries barely escapes this temptation. So I have chosen to read Romans backwards in order to demonstrate that the letter is a pastoral theology about privilege, about power, in search of peace in the empire. So once we've understood how power and privilege and peace worked themselves out in the context of the house churches of Rome, to which Paul is writing, then we can begin to draw application for our context today. Keeping the context of the local church in the forefront of our minds helps us to read this book for the church and resist the temptation to read it for individuals. I've been teaching in our Misfits U before church uh, this little like class about how to read the Bible. And in Misfits U, we've been talking about this concept of social location. Our social location is who we are, how we've grown up, our relationships to others in society, our cultural practices, privilege and power, all of these factor into our social locations. And our social locations give us lenses through which we read the Bible. And one of the most insidious and distorting lenses that we get from Western culture is individualism. And that's why E. Randolph Richards made this confession in the foreword of a book called Reading Romans with Eastern Eyes. He wrote, I don't intend to read my modern Western biases into Romans. It's, it is subconscious, unintentional, but pervasive and serious. For example, we Westerners usually don't sit around talking about the importance of individualism or how guilt is used to motivate us. Yet somehow, Romans seems to me to be a book all about my individual guilt before God. You see how that works? We tend to read our, our biases, our cultural lenses into the book of Romans. And that's going to be a constant temptation for some of us throughout this uh, series. We're, but others of us, as we read Romans backwards and with, pay special attention to the themes of honor and shame, power and privilege and peace amidst the empire, some of us may feel more at home in Romans, more resonance, not having our Western biases so prominently portrayed. And this is a value of roots as well. This is a value of our multi-voiced approach to teaching here. I'm really proud of our community hermeneutic, and I'm really proud of our diverse teaching team. And so throughout the series, we're going to hear from all of the teaching team, except for Darren, who's an honorary member of our teaching team. <laughs> and um, we're going to be studying this text together because Roots is committed to this multicultural approach to uh, community and to studying the Bible. So to get to know the context of Romans, today we're going to start at the very end. We're going to start with Romans chapter 16. We're going to hear a part of Romans that rarely gets read in church. In fact, I've never heard a sermon preached on this until this week when I asked someone, have you ever preached a sermon on this? And they, they sent me a link. Um, this is a part of Romans that usually people, uh, when they get to a list of names in the Bible, they press fast forward, right? So-and-so begat so-and-so, uh, never mind, let's go to the next page. This is one of those texts. But I have found this week that this text is rich. It is filled with goodness, and I'm really excited to talk about it. So 
You're welcome to turn, if you have a translation of the Bible, you're welcome to turn uh, to Romans 16. Uh, or if you have a copy of the Greek New Testament, that'd be even better. Nobody? Nobody? Okay. Um, otherwise, you can follow along on the screens behind me. I'm going to be reading from the 2011 NIV, not the 1984, for reasons that will become clear later. Starting in verse 1, Romans 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sincrea. I ask that you receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help that she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets in their house. Greet my dear friend Epinetus who is, was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampelitus, my dear friend in the Lord. Verse 9. Greet Urbanus, your, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity in Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Astratricus. I'm going to say Astratricus. Uh, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologos, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Ampia, Ampelus, or Olympia, Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. Verse 17. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who would cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote the, down this Letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus, sends you their greetings. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, 
in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles may come to the obedience that comes from faith, to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, that was a long passage, but there is a lot of good stuff there. We're not going to get to all of it today. I wish we could, but we'd be here for a long, long time. So I'm going to cut to the good stuff. From this passage, we learn a lot about the church in Rome. We learn about who Paul is writing to. And by my count, there are 27 people named in verses 1 through 16, and two mentioned but not named. One of the obvious things that we learn right away is that there are both men and women in the church at Rome. Paul commends Phoebe to them, and not only as the courier of the letter, but also as a deacon of the church in Sincria, and as Paul's benefactor or patron. Next week, Pastor Oshida is going to talk about the amazing ways that women were involved in the leadership at Rome. And uh, I'm really excited about that, that message, about Phoebe and Junia and all the others, Priscilla. So you're going to want to hear that. But Paul commends, praises the women's hard work. He praises them for risking their lives, literally their necks, for being imprisoned with him for the gospel and for being in Christ sometimes before he was. But Phoebe isn't the only person that Paul knows from the list. By my count, he specifically claims to know almost half of the people that are named. Including the two, if you include the two that he doesn't name, but he says they are family members of the ones he named, over half of the people that he named are people that he knows personally. Some of uh, the people in the list are fellow Jews, like Andronicus, Junia, and Herodian. Some may have been actual family members of Paul's. Some in the list have Latin names. That means they were probably Roman. But most in the list have Greek names. This doesn't necessarily mean that everyone with a a Greek name was a Gentile. Paul is actually a Greek version of Saul. And contrary to popular belief, Saul never ceased to be Saul. He just also called himself Paul when he was in Greek-speaking parts of the world. So some of the people with Greek names may very well have been Jewish, but he doesn't name them as Jewish. He doesn't claim them as Jewish. Um, And some of them could have been Gentile converts to Judaism, proselytes. That's also possible. So we know that of the 27 members uh, that were named of 1 through 16, 30% are female and 70% are male. But... Of the 10 that are specifically mentioned as leaders in the church, it's reversed. 70% of those leaders are women, and 30% are men. So the Roman church had a disproportionately female leadership. That's what we can deduce from this passage. And some scholars uh, have even, oh, and Junia stands out among this list. I'm I'm gonna go off on a side note here for a second. I was shocked this week when I opened up my 1984 version of the NIV and I saw Junius instead of Junia. I was like, wait, what? Because in the Greek, it is Junia. There's no debate about that among scholars. But in recent trans- some recent translations, they have intentionally made that, that word male. 
And it's not. <laughs> That's just wrong. And so the 2011 corrected it, thank God. But some scholars have tried to argue that the phrase outstanding among the apostles actually means esteemed by the apostles. Because in their minds, it can't possibly be true that Junia was an apostle. So they've already ruled that out. So then that influences their interpretation, their translation. But that, that's actually not a good translation. Based on the grammar of the Greek, Junia is a woman who Paul counts as an apostle, period. That's actually not debated anymore. So deal with it. <laughs> that's, that's just the facts. Um, so from this simple list of names, we learn a lot about the church in Rome. We learn that it was very culturally and ethnically diverse. We learn that it had a lot of female leadership. But there's still one more thing we learn. We learn that it was also socioeconomically diverse, and diverse in terms of its social status. Listen to what McKnight writes. If the women are clearly prominent in the house churches of Rome, and that means that Phoebe's voice would, not, would, would have been a common sound, it seems likely that slaves were also prominently engaged in gospel work. Some believe that household, in Greek, those of, in the household of Aristobulus and the household of Narcissus, is an indicator of slaves. Whether those of indicate slaves or not, the presence of slaves in the house churches of Rome is certain. A few scholars consider Aquila a Jewish freeman. And if this is the case, we have a high-class Roman woman married to a former slave. The famous lines of Galatians 3.28, no longer Greek or Jew, slave or free, male and female, are a reality in the churches of Rome. Others such as Ampelatus and Asinacritus, uh, the whole church that meets in, their, in his residence, as well as Julia and Nerus and his sister, could have been slaves or freemen. So of the churches in Rome, we see a picture emerging, that this is a truly egalitarian community in every sense of the word. There is equality among the disciples, even though there is profound diversity. There are at least likely five house churches in, in Rome at this time. There, uh, there is at least these five and maybe more. There's a house church that meets at Priscilla and Aquila's. There is the gathering that meets in the residence of Aristobulus, the residence of Narcissus, and the same residence as Asinacritus, and the same residence as Philologos. So there's at least five house churches. But there's one last thing that we can discern from this list. In this list of 16 verses, verses 1 through 16, there are 11 instances of some version of in Christ, or of Christ, or in the Lord. That is a disproportionately dense uh, number of this phrase. That means that the house churches of Jesus' disciples in Rome are a multi-ethnic community that have a shared identity in Christ. That what brings them together is the crucified and risen Messiah. That they have one true king, one true emperor. And they are no longer strangers, but now family in Christ. I love the verse that says, Rufus' mother, who is like a mother to me. It's a powerful verse. This is why Paul writes to the Charles churches with such passion. This is his family. This is the family of God. 
And this family is under a threat. Listen to verse 17 again. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. Remember that part right there, their, their own appetites. In a couple weeks, Durr and I are going to do a part one, part two message on the weak and the strong of chapters 14 and 15. Remember that some of the divisions and the divisive people are serving their own appetites. Paul's little turn of phrase there. So this threat of division among the disciples in Rome is the backdrop to the whole letter of Romans. We have to keep this in mind. Paul is here writing pastoral theology. And there's a satanic plot at work amidst the disciples in Rome. On the surface, it doesn't seem satanic. It's, on the surface, it seems like people with their own important convictions that they feel like everyone should share. But as we'll see throughout this series, those personal convictions taken to an extreme can become part of the enemy's plot to divide the church. So Rome, the church in Rome, as diverse as it is, it needs to be reminded by Paul of its allegiance to one true king, Jesus. While the Roman Empire claimed to bring peace, Jesus brings an altogether different kind of peace. While, the, while Rome claimed something called the Pax Romana in Latin, the Roman peace, it was actually a false peace. It was a peace that was produced through utter brutal military force, conquest. Their peace was the extreme efficiency and cruelty by which they conquered people. Their so-called peace was nothing less than oppression. But the peace that Christ brings is more powerful than the peace of Rome. Do you know how I know that's a fact? Here's, here's a fact that I can stake my claim on. The peace of Christ is more powerful than the peace of Rome. You know how I know that? Rome is gone. There's no more Rome. Rome fell. But to this day, the kingdom of Christ continues to spread. The kingdom of Christ continues to transform people, transform whole communities, and transform the world with God's shalom. So it might be surprising for us to learn that peace is a major theme of, of Romans. But the kind of peace that Paul talks about in Romans is a subversive peace. One of the ways that... Uh, Rome maintained its control was through a very rigid system of hierarchical power and through uh, social status. Everybody in Rome knew their place. If you were a woman or a slave or a non-Roman, you knew that you weren't at the top of the social ladder. And everyone in Rome knew that to climb the ladder, they had to obtain glory and honor. Romans, focused on these, is, Romans focuses on these themes of glory and honor, but Paul deliberately subverts them. Paul deliberately turns them on their head and substitutes for them a Christ-shaped alternative. Peace is not achieved by coercion or violence. Peace is a gift from the Holy Spirit that destroys the dividing walls and unites complete strangers to become family for one another. 
Honor isn't due just to the privileged and the powerful in society. Honor is due to every human being made in the image of God for whom Christ died. Glory isn't achieved by defeating one's enemies on the battlefield. Glory comes from God, and glory comes from being conformed into the image of the Son. So as I've been reflecting on this passage this past week, I've been reminded once again about how revolutionary it was for me to come into the church. I came into the church out of gang life. And my concepts of power, my concepts of love, all of those things got completely subverted, turned upside down. And complete strangers in this new social reality called the church became like family for me. I remember when people invited me over for dinner and I, I just felt so awkward eating with these complete strangers, but they loved me with a love that was like alien, foreign to me. And it transformed my heart. That's what's going on in Rome. In Rome, complete strangers who are totally different from one another, separated by class divides, separated by gender, separated by ethnicity and culture, are now becoming one family in Christ. So over the next few weeks, we're going to focus on this theme of subversive peace by reading Romans backwards. But I have a few questions that I want us to keep in the forefront of our minds as we, as we study this book together. First of all, what have your experiences been like in the churches to which you've belonged? What has shaped the culture of those churches? Who decided what was culturally acceptable and what was unacceptable in those churches? Who had the power in those churches? Who had the privilege in those churches? Were there divisions? If so, what were they? Where have you seen Satan at work creating similar divisions to those that divided the church in Rome? Where have you seen God at work creating peace in church? Where have you seen churches seek glory and honor in the way of Rome? And where have you seen churches seek glory and honor in the way of Christ? As Ruth's Covenant Church, we want to live into the kind of glory and honor and peace that Paul is talking about in Romans. In Romans. This, um, this fall quarter, we're going to have opportunities to gather together in our homes, in one another's homes, and discuss the text of Romans together. I really hope that we can all uh, try to avail ourselves to those opportunities because that's really the context in which Romans was heard. Romans was heard in these house churches. And they, were, they had time to ask Phoebe questions and Phoebe would respond to them and interpret the, the letter to them. So this, this quarter, as we, uh, as we meet in our homes, I want us to ask questions and seek, seek peace together. And I want to close this message with the doxology that Paul uses at the end of this. This is a beautiful doxology, but it's also a rehearsal of the gospel. Paul teaches us the gospel at the same time as he worships God. Verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ. In keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. 
Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the true emperor. You are the one who conquers not through violence, not through coercion, not through brutal military force, but you conquer through love, a power that far out overshadows the power of Rome at its height. Rome is gone, but your kingdom endures. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you unite people in one body, in one new family. Thank you that you have destroyed the dividing wall that separates us, and you have created in your own body one new humanity. I pray that our church, as we, as we look into the scriptures, as we study Paul's letter to Rome, that we would have a vision of how you are uniting us, how you are making peace in the midst of our fellowship, that you are bringing people together from all walks of life, from all cultural backgrounds, and that you are making us a witness, a subversive witness of peace against all empires of coercion. Help us to live into that vision, we pray. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.